It really put words to a feeling that I think every woman and minority has felt in a world that is structured around patriarchy. Um, and, you know, it gave, it gave a voice to people who haven't really had a voice and was so impactful. I, I mean, I really just was surprised at how much, how emotional it made me and how, how it, it really set, like I said, I mean, it just gave voice to all these things that we've been feeling and haven't been able, like you said, Kate, to articulate, to really put out into the world. Welcome to episode 82 of People Are the Answer. This is a pretty unique episode, but it still underlines that I truly believe that people are the only answer to the world's many problems. I'm Jeffrey M. Zucker, a serial entrepreneur, here to learn how innovators are creating outsized transformational social impact and to shine a light on all the good happening in a world often hyper-focused on the negative. Normally, I do that by interviewing innovators in social impact, trying to figure out how they became what they are. Today, I am talking with some friends about an innovation in social impact that really impressed me um, and that I think could change the way that impact is made in some capacities. Today's episode features a deep dive on what I think is a masterclass in social impact. And I'm doing so with uh, my friend, Megan Gregory, uh, podcast editor, Nick Case, and my producer, Kate Gray. And uh, we get... We dig deeply into uh, some really interesting facets of the Barbie movie and how it's affected society, what it says about the world. And regardless of how you feel about it and its messages, um, it's a pretty cool innovation um, in how they pulled this off. So uh, I hope you enjoy. Here is the Barbie episode on People Are the Answer. Today's episode features a deep dive on the masterclass in social impact that is the Barbie movie. We've got friend of the podcast, Megan Gregory, with us, our editor, Nick Case, and our producer, Kate Gray. And the Barbie movie, regardless of how you feel about its messages, there's really no denying that it was an ingenuitive way of deeply weaving impact into film and just a way that we haven't seen before in Hollywood in terms of having a big budget movie like that really make the kind of calls that it did and incorporate the kind of messages that it did. So after I saw it, um, I thought, you know, this would be really something to talk about. And, you know, it's been at least a couple months and we've really just been digging deep on learning more about the movie and about everything incorporated into it in order to bring this episode to the audience. Um, so really excited to dig in further and, you know, I want to thank Megan, Nick and Kate for joining me on this episode of People Are the Answer. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Good to be on this side of things. <laughs> yeah, we, we appreciate it. Uh, it's good for the audience to get to see uh, Kate and Nick, who help every week with the podcast. And yeah, let's just give some very brief backgrounds. Um, we can start with you, Megan. Um, yeah, I'm a legal professional, legal professional Barbie. Um, and Barbie has been like front and center of all my childhood memories. Like she was my first friend, honestly. Um, so I'm real excited to, to be here and talk about this movie. Awesome. Yeah. Th thank you for sharing. And, um, yeah, Nick, let's just hear a little bit. And then if you have any specific Barbie related memories. 
Well, um, I'm Nick. I'm the editor, but I also produce a uh, all the ESPN broadcasts for a small college here in Charleston. That's how I know Jeff. Um, and I just kind of took this movie from what I felt was a unique, unique angle and that I'm an only child raised by a single mother. So I kind of had a different approach than most guys would have had going into this movie. And it, it made me really excited to see this movie and made me want to be on this episode to talk about it. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, and Kate? So I am Jeff's assistant, uh, first and foremost. I've been working with Jeff for about seven and a half years now. Um, and I produce a podcast uh, full time. Thanks for coming on, everyone. Um, yeah, I grew up in Southern California, also a child of a single parent. Um, a funny story I have about Barbie is I was like a queer kid growing up in SoCal and wasn't really like into Barbies in the sense that like most young girls were, but I would bury them in the backyard. So if it would start raining or something like that, you just see like these little Barbie hands coming up out of the dirt. And that was kind of my introduction to Barbie. So a little bit different, but it was fun. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Sid from Toy Story. That's what it says. Like. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely relate. <laughs> Awesome. Well, yeah, I mean, I think everybody has some kind of connection to Barbie. I think for me, um, you know, growing up, my sister's six years older than me, but she, she had Barbies around, you know, I was certainly familiar with them and, um, didn't have like a huge impact for me as a kid. Just, you know, I, with my sister being significantly older, you know, they weren't, weren't around a ton. Um, but definitely saw them out in the wild. And certainly I think regardless of how, what you interacted with as a kid, like everybody knows Barbie. And, and so when this movie, when I saw that it was getting made, I was like, what are they going to do with this brand in a movie? Like, I don't know. It seems like it's going to suck. Like was really kind of my initial thought when I was like, oh, they're making a Barbie movie. And then obviously there was all the hype going into it and the, the Barbenheimer stuff and, you know, and seeing the trailer, I was like, I, this looks like it's going to be cool looking. At least I want to see it. Um, no idea what it's about. Um, but clearly it's good filmmaking. I could tell from the trailer and then, you know, then it was what it was. And I just, I'm impressed with how they built it up so much from a marketing perspective without actually telling us what it was going to be. Right. I agree. Yeah, same. I, I really went into it not knowing what to expect at all um, and was just blown away by not just the visuals, but the, like you said, the impact, the storytelling, the messaging. Um, just brilliantly done. Yeah. When I saw the marketing, it kind of had that a look of like, well, this is going to be goofy and like, and kind of unhinged in the best way. And that's what really drew me to it. it. It had that potential to be just like over the top. And there were parts of that really paid off, but I was really not expecting the really good story from two angles that it told and the emotional content that was within. And um, really just, it was a really nice bonus to the, to what it paid off of from the previews. No, it had everything that you wanted when you saw the preview, but it had so much more. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It was like, it had the potential to like really blow your mind, but like, did we know that it was going to be this big? And once I heard Greta was on board, I was like, oh my God, this movie is going to be insane. Yeah, I was, I was going to throw that in. Speaking of Greta Gerwig, you know, when we say they, she was certainly the lead in that as the director co-wrote it um, with her husband and you know, the work that had to have gone in this to get it made like this is pretty incredible. I mean, I think all of us have read a little bit about it since, and it was certainly a difficult task. And um, it, it really came out 
came out impressively. You know, like I said, even if you don't like the messages, you know, as someone else, or if you don't agree or don't like the idea of putting these things in movies, like you can't argue that this wasn't a well done production. Yeah, and every and everybody else feels that way too. Clearly, six hundred and thirty five million U.S. dollars in North America box office. This is as of October twenty fifth of this year. And for a total of 1.44 billion US dollars worldwide, I think other wow. people would agree. <laughs> yeah, highest grossing yeah. movie of the year worldwide and in the US. And I had some hope going in because Warner Brothers had tackled this kind of thing with the Lego movie. The sequel is hit or miss, but the original Lego movie was funny. It had some heart. It was irreverent in the best way. So they had some idea of how to take an IP like this, work with a conglomeration and make it something good. And then they hired with... Um, they had a really good filmmaker, as mentioned, in Greta Gerwig. And so I felt like there was a lot of potential here. And and yeah, it it exceeded. It exceeded expectations. Ended up being Warner Brothers' biggest box office success ever. Incredible. Just pretty unbelievable. And before we did... Harry Potter, even. My gosh. And Dark Knight. Wow. <clears throat> It's, it's unbelievable, honestly. And um, before we dig too deep into the, some of the specifics that uh, were in the story, um, for those that are uninitiated, I mean, I imagine people are only going to click on this podcast if they've seen it, but maybe they're just like, why are people talking about it? I haven't seen it. So for those people, maybe you guys can fill us in on, you know, what it was, what it ended up being. Um, you know, you don't have to give everything away, but. For me, it just felt like, it was like all the things that me as a woman and a minority in several ways wasn't able to articulate for myself. And it was just so well done, so well said that, like Nick mentioned earlier, there's two sides of the story and both of them are empathetic. It's it for me, it was just like all the words I wasn't ever able to actually say or even realize like how I felt until I watched this movie. I completely agree. That's really what I wanted to touch on too. It really put words to a feeling that I think every woman and minority has felt in a world that is structured around patriarchy. Um, and, you know, it gave, it gave a voice to people who haven't really had a voice and, was so impactful. I, I mean, I really just was surprised at how much, how emotional it made me and how, how it, it really set, like I said, I mean, it just gave voice to all these things that we've been feeling and haven't been able, like you said, Kate, to articulate, to really put out into the world. I mean, I, I, I'll just add that, you know, something that this movie made me see, you know, I, I've, like to think that I am on the side of empowering women and trying to bring equality to our society as best as we possibly can slowly, but surely. Um, and despite that, even, you know, certainly open my eyes in certain areas, one of them being like, you know, I've thought about the patriarchy a little bit and how the world is, you know, built for men by men. And I've definitely thought about it more deeply seeing this, but even just that scene with Ken, um, you know, walking in, in the real world and just like everybody being like, Hey man, like, sir, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, he's a great looking white man, you know, like walking around in this world that our society has created. And I just feel like people that aren't most white men aren't thinking about that. They don't realize. 
No, they I don't. They, they don't have to. Exactly. Right. It's a privilege that's afforded to them that they don't have to think about. Right. And the movie in that scene, Jeff, that you're speaking about, it's like Ken's walking around and he's like elated, you know, at the way he's being received. And meanwhile, Barbie's like receiving all this casual sexism and it's new to her. And it's something that we as women deal with daily, literally every day in some capacity. To the point that you're used to it. Exactly. And I think there's something to say there too, is that it, we don't think about that really either in some sense, like it's always there, but it's so ingrained into us that that's how we have to move through the world is expecting and, and anticipating potential violence that it's, it's second nature to just operate that way. And we often have to, you know, plan ahead how we're going to get around in the world because of that. That is really something, something that Jeff is, Jeff and I is, Two good-looking white guys, just like Ryan Gosling, you know, don't have to worry about. <laughs> yeah, no, I absolutely that, and you know, it, it it like brought me into sort of that discomfort that all women must deal with at all times in our society. And you know, honestly, not to like bring us down into current events, but currently as a Jew with rising anti-Semitism, like I get it a little more. Um. So it's just, it's, it, you know, it didn't, it, this movie in its messages, you don't have to, they don't only necessarily apply to this particular topic. No, they apply to, you know, all minorities, everybody who is subjugated under the system of patriarchy. This, the messaging is for all of those people. Right. Um, one thing I'll mention, if you look at the definition of matriarchy and the definition of patriarchy, they're pretty similar but patriarchy has a line in it that says a system of society or government in which men hold the power. And then this is the part that stands out to me. And women are largely excluded from it. And that line is not in the definition of matriarchy. That's a, that's very interesting. It's pretty unbelievable, honestly. And I, you know, to go back to kind of filling people in that might need that, you know, basically it's this beautiful movie visually that is about the existence of our of the patriarchy in our society and compares it to a fictional world that starts off as a matriarchy and finds itself somewhere in the middle at the end which is where we hope to bring our world i would say the differences between you know the definitions of patriarchy versus matriarchy i think like in practice also uh they change right because if we're talking about patriarchy just the, the definition I read was that it centers men and fathers, but in practice, what it really does is just prioritize white men. And then from there, we have all of our other minority groups or everybody who's subjugated underneath them. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, patriarchy damages everybody. It's not just like men against women. It, it affects men as well. I think that's really important to highlight. Like, I agree. And I think that's part of what like men don't really seem to understand that because they benefit so much from patriarchy that they're also they're not really quite seeing the ways that patriarchy is harming them. Right. It's not the world trying to turn against them and say we're anti men. In my opinion, that's not how this movie should be taken either. It's not anti men. It's anti patriarchy. And yes, it has negative effects on all of us. And it's important, you know, in our divisive society these days, there's so many people that approach every topic like with combativeness. So 
you know, the hope is that getting some of those guys to even sit through this movie was, was impactful. Right. And then there's the dudes in the, in the theaters that I think we had a conversation outside of this um, about how the guys that are just like, they want to be heard laughing, you know, like, Oh, I thought that was funny. So I'm going to laugh louder than everybody else in, in the room so that you know that I'm an ally. Yeah. Hear me and pay attention to me. Some other, like, men center themselves. It's the father and get Sorry. out. I would have voted for Obama a third time if I could have. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. Very performative allyship. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, it's, we talked about, you know, the patriarchy and, you know, how it was incorporated into this film, but let's talk about like the product side of it and the fact that like Barbie was ingrained in our culture and how it is such a powerful way to get a message out there. I want to bring up a clip um, from the movie. It's actually Gloria's monologue. Uh, this actually touches on some of the points that we were just speaking about. And it's actually one of my favorite monologues. And there's a few uh, of the movie, but here it is. It is literally impossible to be a woman. You are so beautiful and so smart. And it kills me that you don't think you're good enough. Like, we have to always be extraordinary. But somehow we're always doing it wrong. Like you have to be thin, but not too thin. And you can never say you want to be thin. You have to say you want to be healthy, but also you have to be thin. You have to have money, but you can't ask for money because that's crass. You have to be a boss, but you can't be mean. You have to lead, but you can't squash other people's ideas. You're supposed to love being a mother, but don't talk about your kids all the damn time. You have to be a career woman, but also always be looking out for other people. You have to answer for men's bad behavior, which is insane, but if you point that out, you're accused of complaining. You're supposed to stay pretty for men, but not so pretty that you tempt them too much or that you threaten other women because you're supposed to be a part of the sisterhood, but always stand out and always be grateful. But never forget that the system is rigged, so find a way to acknowledge that, but also always be grateful. You have to never get old, never be rude, never show off, never be selfish, never fall down, never fail, never show fear, never get out of line. It's too hard. It's too contradictory. And nobody gives you a medal or says thank you. And it turns out, in fact, that not only are you doing everything wrong, but also everything is your fault. I'm just so tired of watching myself and every single other woman tie herself into knots so that people will like us. And if all of that is also true for a doll, just representing a woman, then I don't even know. So when I said earlier that this movie puts into words what I personally couldn't articulate, that's kind of exactly what I meant. And that is social currency within the patriarchy, right? Like you have to stay within those guidelines in order to be just seen. Yeah. Yeah. A um, couple things I wanted to, to touch on, especially for me, 
where she says, you're supposed to love being a mother, but don't talk about your kids all the damn time. I think the other thing that's not mentioned here is that you're not allowed to complain about being a mother either because you chose this, you wanted this, but it's also hard. And so there, there are, you, you are allowed, you should be allowed to say, I love being a mother, but I also hate being a mother sometimes. It's really, it's really hard. Um, and that, I think women, especially mothers, are so isolated from society because we have so many expectations to meet and it's just too much. And we isolate ourselves, I think. And it's as somebody that that grew up around, like I said, single mother, I'm a married man. I'm a and my wife is Asian. She's a minority. Like I there are things that obviously I've been exposed to that maybe others haven't as a male. Um, but it it that monologue hit me in a way that 39 years of being around it really didn't. And it wasn't so much as that I didn't see it. It's just that you don't realize the depth of it, even when you see it in increments day by day until it's all compressed into one single word, like one single saying to really hammer it home. It really gets you. I, and And like I said, I've been seeing this for years. I've seen my mother go through it, having to take care of me and be a boss at her work and my wife uh, going, you know, being uh, part of two daughters and, um, and, and going through all that. And it, it, I see it, but I didn't fully see it until I was able to really have it like spelled out for me, spilled out for me, I guess you could say like that. And it was, it it was something that really opened my eyes in a way that it, it, I was seeing, but I wasn't seeing. Yeah. That, no, that's a good way of putting it. Like everything she says, it rings very true. And, but yeah, just hearing it all together like that is like, holy fuck. <laughs> it's a lot. I think it's interesting hearing the perspective that that monologue gave you guys as men, especially Nick, um, you know, growing up with a single mother and just, yeah, like the perspective is probably quite valuable. And I think anybody who hasn't seen the movie, man, woman, whatever, uh, that's, that's what the appeal is here. Mm-hmm. I think part of the reason why men don't see, um, don't really see this until it is kind of spelled out for them this way is because women are also expected to put on a very brave face all the time. We're not really talking about the ways in which we feel suffocated by society or isolated or, um, taken out of the conversation in a lot of ways. Um, And we kind of swallow that. We stuff it down. We don't really speak up when we are feeling marginalized or uh, overwhelmed or overburdened. And, you know, I also have a, grew up with a single mom. I was a single mom for a really, really long time. And there's a lot we don't say and a lot we don't um, express until we really just can't hold it in anymore. And I think that's, we're putting on a brave face a lot of the time. And then it becomes explosive. So yes. If you don't talk about it and, it, and you, if you do talk about it out of those contexts, it's like just seen as like women talking and we hold it in and choke it down until, until we can't anymore. Mm-hmm. And then we're just seen as angry. Right. How dare you? Why are you so angry? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense and shows in the explosion of the character. And I think just how much the words hit all of us just shows how fantastic the writing was. And, um, you know, I mentioned Greta Gerwig uh, and Noah Baumbach uh, co-wrote it. 
and just their way with words is is very well done. You know that that wasn't thrown in there hastily. Right. I think everything was just so well put together. Like the little isms here and there, like I'd never wear heels if my feet were shaped this way, like in the heels versus Birkenstocks debate. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't either. <laughs> no, I love that. And it shows sort of that, but in order to play the game that we were just talking about it within the patriarchy, like that's what you have to do. Right. Otherwise you're like slovenly and your heels aren't high enough. You're, you don't know what you're doing or it's, you're just like frowned on just like the stupidest, like minute things that could really just derail your whole everything. And I think like, so in that context, you know, this world that women have to live in a certain way to get through or to get anywhere yet they have women generally run things from that perspective as, as they can, in my opinion. And I think that shows in the fact that women hold 85% of consumer spending power. Yep. Well, that was in relation to Beyonce, the Barbie yeah. movie and Taylor Swift grossing $7 million over the summer. Se and just billion. those three, sorry, 7 billion, my bad. Yeah. 7 no. million is a little low for those three. <laughs> Women also hold, uh, I, I was reading some statistics about the wealth in the United States and purchasing power and all this stuff. Women hold only 60% of personal wealth in the United States. Um, but our purchasing power annually globally is between five and $15 trillion and 40% of working U.S. women out-earn their significant others. So we are carrying this economy on our backs. <laughs> Not to mention women are usually the ones that come up with the trends, and Black women in particular, which gay men will perpetuate, and then the rest of society seems to pick up and run with. Yeah. Before we move on too, too far, I, I kind of wanted to talk about, um, and this is something that we talked about in some of our meetings before, um, the matriarchy versus patriarchy, if we can go back to that, the definition, but um, if I could give shape to both of these systems, um, and like I think we've talked about this before, patriarchy is shaped like a triangle. We have men at the top, everybody else underneath them. But in between the top and the bottom, we have some groups of people who act as agents of the patriarchy, white women being one of the most guilty groups of doing this, right? Um, and if I could give shape to the matriarchy, it would be a circle with mothers and women centered at the very middle and everybody working around her mothers to support the system and working together. Um, and I think what is so triggering to a lot of men who have watched this movie or who have even thought about an idea of, the idea of replacing patriarchy, the assumption is often that women want to replace it with an identical system but one which subjugates men instead. Um, but really what we want to do is structure the world in more of an egalitarian way and prioritizing women and mothers in a way that highlights their value because women and mothers make the world go around. We, you know, none of us would be here without our mothers um and if we gave even a fraction of reverence to moms a fraction of reverence that they deserve you know what a different society we would have um but again i think it's triggering when men think about well if we don't have patriarchy then what do we have 
And then you think about what it would look like if if it was like a matrilineal society as Barbie land is. And then like the responses to like, Barbie, why are you so amazing? And, you know, I think Issa responds with no comment or just like, Barbie's never no, really, say thank no you. Comment. It's always like, it's, no. yeah, no, really no comment. <laughs> and then they never say thank you. They just acknowledge their personal effort and their hard work. Yeah. They've self-actualized. They don't need male approval. And, and that, you know, brings me back to like the social currency within our current system is that male approval and male validation is one is, is something that men have structured the world to, what am I trying to say here? Men have created a world in which their validation and approval is required and they expect us to seek that. And they assume we're seeking male validation even when we're not. So like, you know, women wearing makeup or dressing for themselves or any of those things, it's always assumed that it's for the male gaze. It's not, <laughs> we don't care. <laughs> but so many of us have been conditioned to believe that we do need that. And so like, that's where you have like pick me girls and things like that. And they are, they are dressing for the male gaze and that's their thing. And that's what they would like to do. And if that's your thing, then go. And that's fine. Yeah. But I think like, um, there is something to be said though, too. We, we do kind of have to use that to our benefit sometimes. Um, or we don't really have a choice, but to. It's part of playing within the system. Yeah. Like kind of making the patriarchy work for you. You know what I mean? Um, taking advantage of yeah taking advantage of that that currency that social currency even if it's not genuine right it's still a currency i kind of want to take a, a moment back and you know you guys were talking about the patriarchy and 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 the men that feel threatened by like an even society i really don't think it's coincidence that the people that were most vocal about this movie in their hate before they saw anything about it are the same ones that kind of have the same ideas about a society where minorities and whites are, are equal, you know, and, and look, it's not like a one for one in terms of these same people are compare, uh, complaining, but I feel like the vast majority of them are those same people. And the it, diagram is pretty tight. It's, it's you know, pretty, it's yeah, it's, it's, yeah, exactly. And I don't think there's a coincidence in that. I think that's because, uh, patriarchy and white supremacy and capitalism are inextricably linked. You cannot separate them. They are the same system. So I definitely think that white supremacy and patriarchy are linked. And I think like capitalism as a concept isn't necessarily linked, but the way in which it has been implemented in our society is certainly the way it's used in America is linked. Mm -hmm or just even in the world, but in our society, like versus the con there are concepts of capitalism that I certainly like. And I think there is conscious capitalism, et cetera, but, and I think that can be a sustainable way to build something in, in that model. But I th agree that like the way that capitalism has been implemented in our society um, is definitely linked with patriarchy. Uh, I think this is a good time to play Sasha's monologue. Um, which actually is very relevant to what we're talking about right now. Um, this is Sasha's monologue when she meets Barbie for the first time in her cafeteria. Anyways, even then it was horrible for us. It was horrible? Why? 
Come on, Sasha. Give it to her. Destroy Barbie. Okay, Barbie. Let's do this. You've been making women feel bad about themselves since you were invented. I think you have that the wrong way around. You represent everything wrong with our culture. Sexualized capitalism, unrealistic physical ideals. No, no, no. You're describing something stereotypical. Barbie is so much more than that. Look at yourself. I am technically stereotypical Barbie. You set the feminist movement back 50 years. You destroy girls' innate sense of worth, and you are killing the planet with your glorification of rampant consumerism. No, I'm supposed to help you and make you happy and powerful. <laughs> oh, I am powerful. And until you showed up here and declared yourself Barbie, I hadn't thought about you in years, you fascist. So, there's that. <laughs> she has a point there. Um, I feel like that monologue is kind of like how I went into the movie in general, you know, like before I even saw a clip when I heard this was being made, it was like, Barbie, really? Like, how are you guys going to make this like uplifting or positive for women having those stereotypes in my mind? And one thing I find really interesting about that is like, you know, the founder of Barbie, Ruth Hendler, like she, she thought she was lifting up women by showing all the things they can do by having the different types of Barbie, et cetera. But in reality, it's set, a different standard of body image and a lot of various issues, obviously that we've, some of which we've covered. And I kind of like that the movie sort of brings us back to like what the original concept was and how can we do that better? I'd also like to say, I mean, as a, as a kid playing with Barbies, like I said, Barbie was my first friend. I didn't have any girls that ever lived near me. My brother had a ton of friends. I was by myself a lot of the time. Um, and I never, and I, I think I probably played, played with Barbies until I was like 12 or 13 or something and her body and, you know, like that never occurred to me. It was never something I really thought about. I thought about like um, comparing yourself, you mean? Yeah. It, it just never occurred to me that, you know, it was unrealistic or that mm. I didn't look like her or any of those things. Cause I, I, she's a doll. I knew she was a doll, but I did feel inspired by all the things that Barbie could do. Barbie could be a doctor. Barbie could be a veterinarian. Barbie could be an astronaut. She could be an Olympian. Um, and that was really inspiring to me as a kid who faced a lot of isol isolation and didn't really have a lot of like direction or, you know, dreams as far as like what I wanted to do as an adult. But when I would look at Barbie, I'm like, okay, well, if she can be anything, I can be anything. So the physical standards, body standards or beauty standards, that, that never really occurred to me as a kid. It's interesting. And it's kind of like how the one girl at the table during this monologue is like, I love Barbie. Right? Because there were girls and boys, I'm sure, that love Barbie. For me, that's such an interesting perspective that you just brought up, Megan, because for me, I feel like, and even like being like a young queer, like very androgynous tomboy type, I assumed that my body would just look like that one day. <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah. Interesting. Didn't happen. <laughs> well, that's I mean, you were, <laughs> Kate, you, do you think that was potentially a product of your environment? I know you lived in the LA area, which is very known for its care of body image superficialness yeah that definitely was part of it um i grew up in and like i should mention that my grandpa was 
a little bit famous back in the day. So I had celebrities coming in and out of the house. He was a drummer. Um, so like a lot of musicians and stuff. And that was just kind of my life. And I assumed that, you know, like I would be famous one day and that, you know, it, it would just come <laughs> and it never did, but like, obviously I didn't pursue it. And it's just, yeah, that's a good point, Jeff. It, it definitely was kind of like a nature or nurture versus nature thing for me. The only thing I have to add, because Barbie didn't really affect me, but my mother um, grew up with Barbies, was a Barbie person. She was a tiny, blonde, pretty woman. She was stereotypical Barbie growing up. She saw this movie and kind of had the same thought as Kate, like, why do I want to see this? She thought it was going to be a romance between Ken and Barbie. And so when I told her, like, how deep the movie got, she was genuinely shocked and was, like, suddenly very interested to see, like, with all the directions it took and everything. So somebody that grew up with Barbie and kind of developed that same thought process of this is just going to be a romance because this is what they do. I don't want to see that. It, it found it very interesting, the direction they took and now wants to see it. Love that. Megan, I think I cut you off earlier, Megan. Did you have something to add to? Oh, I was going to say my, uh, my brother, I, I don't know really what the segue was, but my, um, my brother hated Barbies. He hated that I played with Barbies. And yeah. I remember he had um, like a Barbie sized, I guess a Ken sized GI Joe. And my great aunt, Judy Gregory, made me, hand sewed me Barbie clothes for Christmas one year. It was like Christmas of 1995. And she um, made me this beautiful like satin Barbie gown and a veil and like the whole works. And I remember very specifically trying to marry my Barbie to the GI Joe and my brother just absolutely losing his mind. He hated Barbies. Yeah, that's also a funny, well, not funny, but a perspective that I'd like to touch on. It's like the idea of playing with a doll and how that could affect who you become later on in life and how I I personally don't think it has any bearing. You know, you could play with G.I. Joes. I played with G.I. Joes. I played with Barbie, but like not in the stereotypical sense. But being who you are, having these dolls to relate to, like you said, Megan, you know, you didn't have any girlfriends these dolls became your friends. I feel like that's probably true for so many young kids and still is uh, when they feel lonely or just don't have somebody to really lean on. These dolls can can really fill that void. And I feel like to what you said, like the thought process of the past of you play with these dolls and this is who you become. You see all the fathers, you watch episodes of Friends and um, when, um, when, the, when Ross's kid is growing up, yeah, the the mothers the mothers bring over the him playing the son playing with the doll the Barbie and he's trying to force an action figure that mindset is going and I kind of wonder thankfully that's fading but twenty years ago if this movie had been made and we know it was a development hell on this movie it had been attached back and forth what would this movie have looked like twenty years ago because there's no way this would have flown twenty years ago would it have been more like my mother expected how would that have gone I, I it would have been really interesting to see with the times changing, how Barbie would have been portrayed. Yeah, I actually read an article where um, I think it was Greta Gerwig being interviewed that reflected on that a little bit, just in like, yeah, it's been trying to get made for so long, but it's actually, the timing worked out really well that this is when it, you know, it was kind of meant to be when it was. Because yeah, like you said, Nick, I think it would have been totally different 20 years ago. I did hear that it took about 20 years for the men at Mattel to agree to make this movie and that it was previously linked to Amy Schumer, but that never came about. I will say, I don't think that it would have ever been a love story between Barbie and Ken. Like, I don't think that would have been the focus. Um, 
because Barbie or Ken is superfluous. They say this in the movie. And I think most people who grew up playing with Barbies probably had one Ken doll, if one at all, um, and dozens of Barbies. That was how I rolled. Um, but it's also interesting. I watched a bunch of Barbie commercials um, just to kind of take notes as we've been preparing for this podcast. And Ken is absolutely an afterthought in every single one of them. And I thought it was really interesting when he was first introduced um, that he was introduced as Barbie's boyfriend, not her husband, in a time where not having a husband or not being married is, you know, a little, a little taboo. That's a good point. Did Barbie have an age that she was supposed to be? I don't think so. I think it, they probably kept it generic, like an age range. I don't think yeah. I've seen a particular age. Yeah. Yeah, that that makes sense. And um, Kate, you'd mentioned that, you know, like, does it make you, does it change who you are based on like what you're playing with, that kind of thing? And I mean, I think it, it brings me back to that intro scene from the movie, um, you know, sort of spoofing 2001 A Space Odyssey, where they have the little girls playing with baby dolls. And that was the only thing. And it's like, because the patriarchy was training them to be moms, right? So it's like, somebody thinks that it can affect who you become. For sure. I always thought that was so weird too. Like, why do I have to play with a fake baby? Like, gross. <laughs> and a lot of the time, like the eyes would open and close when oh, you like move I it or it awful. would like shit. I have its some pants. of those creepers in my house right now. So. <laughs> the, the weird. <laughs> oh, no. and, and Jeff has, okay, that's enough of that, Nick. <laughs> but Jeff, has, Jeff has two little boys. So I'm glad to hear you have some of those creepy dolls. In your house. I'm really happy to hear that. Well, you guys you know said that like, oh, sorry, go ahead, Megan. Boys playing with dolls, what's the worst thing they can happen? What's that? What they grow up to be uncles or dads who love to care for their, their nieces and nephews or their children? God forbid. Yeah, it, it repeats me back to what Nick said about how, like, you know, the culture is moving at least in the right direction of like not trying to replace that with an action figure or whatever. And yeah, you know, Jess and I are very particular about like, Letting them play whatever they want. If they want to dress up in a Spider-Man costume, great. If they want to dress up in a princess dress, great. We don't care. Just be who you want to be. Like like you said, too, about just like, yeah, it'll make them caring individuals. I mean, I think there have been studies showing that like millennial dads are like a lot more connected to their kids than dads of previous generations. And so I, I think that we're going to continue to get better than, at that. But you know, what is our job right now in society? It's like, we need to cultivate the future and making men more caring and loving is certainly helping the future. So. Well, and, and Kate brought up the stat earlier that now women are 60% of the time, the, the main breadwinner. And that's really helping that I think, because it's shedding that, that, that feeling as a man of, I have to provide and protect, and now I can be home more. And I think that's a, that's a, just a net positive for society. Well, and, and I think being a, you know, a stay at home dad or, or, or a dad who spends more time at home with his children, you are providing and protecting. Like there is no one way to do that. And I, I think that's a message that really needs to be amplified that um, being a caregiver for your children is so vital. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think um, this is a good part to uh, play our last clip of Rhea, Rhea Perlman playing Ruth. You understand that humans only have one ending. Ideas live forever. Humans, not so much. You know that, right? 
I do. Being a human can be pretty uncomfortable. I know. Humans make things up like patriarchy and Barbie just to deal with how uncomfortable it is. I understand that. And then you die. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We make things up so that we can cope with what we're going through. And I think it makes sense that people would take it too far or not far enough. It's all, you know, your perspective. It's all about how you go through life. And I think, I just think that clip is, it touched me. And there's a part of that monologue where she says, we mothers stand still so our daughters can look back and see how far they've come. I lost my shit in that part of the movie. I started bawling. It is so touching and I'm not a mother, but it seems so true to me. I just, I loved it. It is so true. I, um, you know, one of the things I've, I've really kind of struggled to understand recently is um, older generations having an issue with uh, younger generations having any sort of privilege or having it any easier than they had it. Because what is the point if not to make it easier for our kids? What is the point? What are we doing if we're not building a better, easier, more comfortable, safer world for the next generation? Um, and yeah, that, that monologue really hit me when I watched the movie the first time too and thought a lot about my daughter and um, you know all the things that I would do, all the things I would sacrifice to watch her go as far as she can. If you're enjoying this episode, I would greatly appreciate if you could review, like, comment, or subscribe on your favorite platforms. Your engaged support goes a long way in helping the show grow and getting our impactful guests heard. Now back to the show. That, that scene, and then the moment where Barbie chooses to be real, the footage, I think it's all crew too, of them growing up as young and playing with toys and dolls and and the Billie Eilish song what was I made for just gorgeous song that whole scene devastated me in the best way possible it was so beautiful so amazingly done I agree a thousand percent and going like watching the movie again you realize that the whole score is sort of modeled from that song and so it all connects you you've slowly been listening to this song throughout and yeah I mean I think it's a gorgeous song um and just really tied everything together nicely and it's just Kate I think like yeah you're talking about the part where Ruth says you know that we're coping with with getting through life it is just yet she's choosing it um just I, that was really impactful yeah I would agree um that that whole monologue I mean all of the monologues were so well thought out and like Megan and I mentioned earlier it's just this movie just articulates some of the things that I feel like a broad scope of women and people who identify as women or just people in general can relate to and actually articulate now. I'll even say from, I'll, I'll even say from my point of view, just watching Ken's arc at one point being kind of a lost soul without a purpose. Oh my God, it was beautiful. Like, obviously I didn't fall into the patriarchy and the horses and Mojo Doja Casa houses like he did, but just to watch his arc and, and his self-realization and become his full self 
from being the afterthought was just, even on that side, was just beautiful. Yeah, I think, Megan, you brought up that Ken's big number wasn't meant to be as big as it was, but Ryan Gosling loved it. Yeah, yeah. I read a, um, a little piece of trivia that said it was it was kind of a throwaway scene. They weren't really sure they were going to include it. Um, but Ryan Gosling loved it so much that they made it this big dance number. Um, and, you know, I love to see dance majors getting jobs. So that's great. <laughs> it's so good. I, that's probably one of my favorite parts, um, including the Kens, at least. It's just so perfect. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think talking about, you know, this, this brings us to the topic of mental health, which is also a big part of this movie, in my opinion, something that, you know, we, we very much need to bring as much to the forefront as possible. It's, you know, equally important to our physical health. And, um, you know, so this touches on the impact of patriarchy on mental health. Um, and one thing I know that we talked about internally was like, is mental illness just life as it's always been? And we're more open about it now, or is it getting worse? Is social media making it worse? And I think the Barbies that America Ferreira's character was coming up with, you know, broached that that line. Like, um, or well, ordinary Barbie, I remember was her idea later on. But what were the ones that she was drawing at the beginning? Do any of you remember? Um, cellulite Barbie. Uh, yeah, Irrepressible Thoughts of Death Barbie. Irrepressible Thoughts of Death Barbie was the one I was looking for, for sure. Either you're brainwashed or you're weird and ugly. I think that's a projection, like, from... That's a box that men have kind of built for women, right? Like, you either conform to what we want you to be, or you're gross and ugly and old and nasty and we don't want you. Um, yeah, that feels like a projection to me. <laughs> Like it's not a lot, it's more aligned with how men view women. Right. So you're, yeah, that's part of playing the game. And so do we think that like mental health is getting worse? And I know this is like somewhat off topic, but like, I felt like the movie wondered that as well. Like, is it because we've been so quiet that it's everywhere or is it a combination of those things like social media? That's what I was going to say. Yeah. That's it's a combination. I think that our society is sick. I think that a lot of our mental illness comes from, um, you know, housing insecurity, food insecurity, clothing insecurity, um, all of those things. I think there's so much that could be done from the ground up to heal people, to support people, and thus would ease the burden of mental illness. Um, I don't think that it would necessarily, it wouldn't cure us all. We all have what we have. Um, but I also think that there's something to be said about generational trauma that is kind of trickling down to a generation who has been overburdened with, um, trauma in our society, experiencing one school shooting after another, one terrorist attack after another, you know, it's all these things kind of accumulating. And at the same time, our society is moving so forward with technology and everything is in our faces all the time how how can we be well right and i i would say that you know jeff your question in regard to like is it getting worse i feel like it, it is probably a combination of all of the factors that you mentioned but this isn't something that the generations before us ever really talked about let alone acknowledged so while mental illness was there it wasn't really seen or 
you know, medicated or there wasn't anything done. You were thrown in a mental institution or some sort of asylum, given a lobotomy or something like that, depending on what the issue was and forgotten. I have family members like my great, no, my grandma's brother, which I didn't even realize she had a brother until like a few years ago, has been in an insane, and I say this in air quotes, a sane asylum, asylum for as long, longer than I've even been alive. So that just goes to show that it's still happening. These, like, we need to be talking about this. We need to like make mental health normal, like prioritizing mental health. That needs to be normal. The same as you would your physical health, you know, like people who have an annual physical with their general practitioner. I mean, we really should be treating mental health um, preventatively, like, and, and taking steps, which is why I think everybody should be in therapy from the time that they can walk and talk, honestly. Um, and my kids have all been in therapy. Yeah, my kids have all been in therapy, you know, off and on since very early childhood. Um, and I, I think there's something to be said like you said, you know, previous generations are not talking about this because it was so stigmatized and shamed. Um, I mean, some of the richest families in the world have institutionalized family members because of mental illness. Rosemary Kennedy is one. They put her in a hospital and left her there for the rest of her life. A lot of that is because like they, yeah, of course, they didn't want to talk about it because the resources weren't there, but also like don't call, don't write, you know, like shove that person away. And because she my understanding is because she just was outspoken and she was busty. She had a large, she had like developed early. So she had large breasts and her father thought, well, she's going to be promiscuous. So we better lock her up. I think a, a big part of it is this was not talked about. My grandmother had all the telltale signs of being bipolar. My mother is bipolar. She, she was finally diagnosed about 15 years ago. I'm bipolar. My grandmother was never formally diagnosed, but she had all the signs, but they never talked about it. It wasn't a thing that existed because if it was taboo or you were put away or it showed some defect that you couldn't show whether you were, you know, female, especially. Um, but I think there are so many influences now that are just making it worse. The inundation of social media is like already mentioned such a big part of it. You know, you get bored and you go on your phone and you go on Twitter. It's always going to be Twitter. And uh, you just see horror after horror or somebody just, spouting some bullshit that just affects you in a way that it probably shouldn't, but it does. And you're just like, this is hurting me, but you, you keep going back for whatever reason. I know that's my case. Uh, so I think it, yeah. it's definitely a, a combo answer. I think it is finally being talked about and that's why it's at the forefront more, but I think there are so many more avenues for it to hit you. And even like, I'll say as a guy too, I get hit by some of it too. Like, I'll tie it to Barbie for a second. You guys talk about the, the body image issue of Barbie with females. You look at Ken. I don't have rippling abs. You look at any of these. I'm a big superhero movie guy. I don't look like Chris Evans, Chris Hemsworth, any of these guys with the big muscles. And, the, and like, it gives you a bit of a complex. Like, I'm comfortable with how I look and who I am. But I watch one of these movies and go, damn it, I wish I looked like that. Like, that's just another avenue. That up. Yeah, that's another avenue of, of saying of affecting your mental health, even when you think you're okay with it, you'll see this movie and try to escape and just go, why don't I look like that? Why can't I look like that? Even though it is how many hours of a training regimen, six days a week that they're paid to do. And you don't have that. Another facet, another facet of the patriarchy, social currency. Not everybody has the same 24 hours in a day. Yeah. And it, Kate's absolutely right. It's another part of the patriarchy because like, even when you look within that as a schlubby short white male, 
I don't, I haven't gotten the opportunities that I know taller, better looking guys have gotten because they fit that look. And, and it, it is part of it. And it's within that pyramid. And, you know, I'm not going to say I'm a victim because I also know that I've gotten opportunities as a white male that I wouldn't have otherwise. But within that pyramid that's been talked about, it still affects even white men in ways that isn't realized until a rant like this. Yeah, I mean, Nick, I also appreciate you bringing up the kind of male perspective on that. I can certainly relate as someone that's dealt with weight issues my whole life. And like, you know, just thinking of all the things I was told growing up around that and just how much I'm trying to like not give my kids a complex around food, um, you know, is just that it's all based on stuff like that. Like the way that the media makes you want to look. And obviously it's so much more extreme, I would say for females, but um, yeah, it's, it's worth noting that it certainly has affected guys, uh, mental health. I wonder how, so I know like the younger generations are, you know, much more in touch with, I don't even want to call it their feminine side, just like younger males are painting their nails and like expressing themselves in ways that they want to express themselves. And I less sort of gender boundaries that are gender neutral side. Exactly. Yep. And I wonder, and that's becoming the norm, you know, like for younger generations coming up and as they, you know, succeed in life, it's, it's going to become norm. So I wonder how, you know, social media and, and the, the social patriarchal, patriarchal currency is going to affect these younger generations of boys who are, you know, a little bit more real, let's just say. And I'm not, again, I'm not making a one-to-one comparison here, but I think you're starting to see some effects of that because- 15 years ago, how many jobs would say no tattoos? Nothing like that. And and look, like I said, it is not a fair comparison to say that equals painting your nails, being gender neutral, anything like that. But those walls are falling to where that self-expression is a lot more allowed in places where it wasn't seen as professional before. And I think that's another step in the right direction. Yep, thankfully. Totally agree. I like, yeah, no, I like that. I wouldn't have and the it job shows... I have now 10 years ago with all the tattoos I have. Yeah. And it shows like... As a younger generation is slowly gaining some control in society, despite what Congress tells us, um, <laughs> that things do change a little bit. You know, even if right now it's just like people don't care if other people want to cover themselves in tattoos, like, or have any, whatever, like, that doesn't, that means we can make some progress. That brings me to a quote from Sasha um, where she says, even if you can't make it perfect, you can make it better. And I think that really speaks to our current climate um, and how the changes that we want to see and, and the impact that we want to see from younger generations, all, none of that's going to happen overnight. This is a very, very slow moving process to dismantle systems that have been in place since this country's inception, uh, since before that, you know. Um, so it, it's taking time, but I do think that little by little we're seeing progress and and I just, I really cannot wait to see what this next generation is going to do for the world. Like so many of us, I think, are trying so hard to raise kids, boys and girls who are compassionate and emotionally intelligent and um, really want to do better for everybody and not just themselves. I think that does tie in kind of to like the way that the lawyers are per portrayed uh in mattel like the whole board and like how childish and you know uninformed they are like uh during the cubicle chase when there's only one woman and there's like a bunch of guys running around the cubicles and 
Will Ferrell runs like, don't you dare push that button. Let me push it. It's like a fun, it's a fun extreme play on like, yeah, exactly. It's a fun extreme play on like the, what the patriarchy is at the top, you know, this, and also just the idea that like these groups of men are making decisions about a girl doll, like a doll that's generally targeted toward females. Like, um, it just, yeah, that happens so much in our society. Um, and God, yeah, Will Ferrell crushed it. Oh, he's so good. He's so funny. Um, in the box, Jezebel. <laughs> um, I think it, it kind of mirrors to our society where we have a bunch of men in powerful positions that are making a lot of lifelong decisions, uh, generational decisions for the entire country, but particularly women and other minority groups. Um, right. Without a single woman in the room. Right. It's funny, I think um, there's one part when they introduce the board and Barbie walks in and goes, well, can I talk to your CEO? What's her name or something like that? Like, you know, Will Ferrell's like, it's me. And she's completely flabbergasted. I mean, that would be. The music in this movie is fantastic. So many people put great work into it. And it shows that how much the music can sort of permeate through society um, just from this movie and how impactful music itself can be in general, in addition to film. So um, I just thought it was really well done. And uh, I think it's worth talking a little a little bit about. Yeah, I, uh, there's the one part where they're all sitting around the campfires um, singing the song Push by Matchbox 20. Uh, Megan, I think you did some digging on this. What'd you find? Yeah, so I uh, Rob Thomas was approached by the filmmakers in this movie, and he but they, so they describe the scene that it's all the Kens playing fireside at the Barbies playing this song. And he assumed that he would be the butt of the joke. Um, and he basically was just like, you know what? I can take it. I'm thick skinned. And I kind of expected that response from him. I think he probably has a really good sense of humor, um, but it sounds like he really loved it. So. I mean, I feel like that song's kind of been the butt of a lot of jokes over the years. So a lot of his songs, I would be I think. So- <laughs> Yeah, I would be surprised if he took offense, but yeah, so good. It was a product of that late 90s male angst era rock and like rap rock. And so I feel like it was the perfect one for that because they're putting that soft, like sort of romantic touch on it sitting by a fireside. But it's really that angsty patriarchal song about anger that they're feeling and probably just now realizing they're feeling so it there is a bit of a joke there but it also i feel like is the perfect song for that moment for what the kens are going through mm-hmm. right and the barbies are using that song to kind of distract yep. them while they kind of get their mojo back which is another example of making the patriarchy work for you social currency exactly. <laughs> so yeah i mean i love the inclusion of that song glad to hear that rob thomas you know felt good about it and could handle it and i'm sure that he's grown tremendously since he wrote that song so many years ago anyway and you know that song dance the night away has has blown up as well um there was the lizzo song that they uh during the first and first scene and then when barbie after she you know realizes there's mortality um they change up the song i thought that was pretty cool I love that. How, you know, like the very beginning of the movie, it starts with like her doing her routine and everything's perfect. And Lizzo's singing her song. And then a little bit later when things start changing, things just really start going downhill, which is very like 
apropos for like real life, you know, like you're, you're never going to get your toast toasted perfectly and, you know, everything just goes so well. But for Barbie, that was, you know, her reality. And then they changed up the song to, you know, go with the things that are changing in Barbie's world. So I love that. So the music was great, super impactful choices made really thoughtful. I mean, that's what we're finding throughout this movie is just all the decisions were made with a lot of, of thought and intention. Um, I can certainly appreciate that. Um, you know, I, I was talking to a friend earlier about, you know, the fact that I was recording this podcast, like what made me want to do one about Barbie. And, you know, I talked about it being a masterclass in impact filmmaking. Um, you know, and his response was that it was, was it maybe too over? Well, what I'm saying is, was it maybe too over the top? But he was saying like, oh, I just felt it was way over the top, hit you in the head with it. And, you know, I'm not surprised to get that, to hear that from someone, but it's so rare. My perspective is that it's so rare to get these kind of messages in mainstream society, even if the fringes are talking about them a lot of the extreme ends of society. So I'm just curious what you guys think in terms of the concept of someone coming to you and saying they were too over the top with the message. I mean, you're always going to get pushback, right? And can't please everyone. Um, for me personally, it feels like maybe he missed the message. Simple as that. Yeah. I think if, if we're saying that we're doing, we're going too over the top with the message of centering women and, uh, I mean, I think that's, it's a little tone deaf because women are not centered in our world and we deserve to have a voice. I, yeah. It's a little short-sighted, I would say. Yeah. I was going to say, if, if that's your perspective, if you don't want to put women on a pedestal or even give them a microphone, you might want to check your, uh, there's some internal digging to do that. Yeah. And in this particular friend wasn't to the extreme that, you know, sort of the, the far right has been, but like, when you do think of like what the response was on the right, like to me, the, the idea that anyone could be offended by this movie is embarrassing. Cause like, especially men, like it's calling out things that we all know to be true. Like when America Ferreira did that monologue, like all of that is like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Like, and there's no question to me that th those males generally see that as well. And it's, it's so interesting that, a power shift is that scary to them. Even even the idea of it, not that this is immediately going to shift power. Right, and, and it, it does like say a lot more about them than it does the movie itself when when men have that kind of response. And then, just, women. And, and then just as a male to focus on the female side and not look inside at the Ken side of things. Like I said, I got something from that as a, as a male. What was his thought on the male side? Was there any? So what was his focus? Just the female side. For So for him to say... Well, I think it hits you over the head. I think you're just looking for what you're looking for at that point. One of the questions I've heard asked a lot is like, um, you know, people who think that this movie is making fun of men and then follow that up with, well, what if men made a film making fun of women as if y'all haven't been doing that since the dawn of time? You know, like, come on. We, we've seen all of that. I can, I, I can list five movies right now of men ma literally making fun of women, making women the butt of the joke. When really this, this messaging is forcing men to examine themselves. And, um, and I think it really brings up a lot of insecurities because people who are used to being prioritized 
and used to being, uh, you know, propped up by the patriarchy, the idea of any kind of equality feels like a threat. Yeah, and, and also they have a fear of introspection uh, on frequently. Yeah, yeah. Because what do you what do you find when you start to look internally? That can be scary sometimes. Right, and that's displayed in the "You the Man" montage, which is such a perfect picture of like stereotypes for men. And I think like the the fact that certain men had this type of response is just like. They're just illustrating the point. You know, they're just underlining the point of this movie. And if you have that kind of response, you need to examine your relationship to women. Yes. I mean, I imagine anyone that did have that kind of response hasn't gotten, you know, over an hour into our podcast about this. (laughs) But if they have, good on you for listening, you know, for opening your ears. And thank you. Along those lines, are you guys familiar with what's called the Bechtel test? Yes, I'm not. Yeah, so it's a test that was created by two scientists that like measures like the representation of women in, in film. And if they're basically like a side character, they fail the Bechtel test. If they're a prominent character or a featured character, they pass what's called the Bechtel test. These people are not looking for Bechtel test passing movies. They're looking for movies where you're pretty, you're off to the side, you come in occasionally. That's what it sounds like. Yep, very interesting. And- well, I'm going to just apologize in advance for my upcoming movie, The Late Game, that has <laughs> one female in it. But the reality of men's league hockey is that, you know, occasionally we I play teams with females on them, but uh, it is very rare that there is a female present at our, you know, 11 p.m. beer league game. So the fact that we got a female in there, I think, was was good. Having played in yeah, similar leagues, I can confirm. Yeah, it's, I it's think that's realistic, too. Yeah. 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 It's All right, so I just I need to come out and say that as we were talking about the <laughs> test. Is there criteria in the Bechtel test regarding like queer representation as well? Uh, I are, I know for sure it is for me, for females. Um, I, I I will look it up because I actually have the Wikipedia up right now. But yeah, I'm interested. Yeah, really, just uh, it says women uh, presence of women in fiction doesn't really say anything about. Uh, queer or anything like that. I want so. I want a new test developed by two more scientists that include queer people. In the, the, gray, the, the gray Gregory, <laughs> the gray Gregory test. There you go. There. Perfect. And I mean, if it, maybe it exists too, we could do some yeah. research because you know I wouldn't be surprised if we hadn't heard of it yet. Yeah, there's got to be something out there. I would think so. Megan mentioned that every Barbie has a bespoke song, um, which I didn't know, and I think is very interesting and. I can't imagine what they are, especially considering how rough the branding and marketing was, you know, around the start of Barbie. Um, so maybe we can dig into that a little bit. Yeah, I wish I had written down some more specifics about this. Um, but I, like I said, I was watching a bunch of Barbie commercials, particularly ones from the, the 80s and 90s. And the all the Barbies had their own bespoke song, which was like talking about their clothing and their accessories and or their job, or, um, you know, just various things about that particular Barbie. And it it dawned on me that the scene where Ken asks Barbie if he can come over to her house, and she says, yeah, I don't have anything planned, just a big blowout party with all the Barbies and planned choreography and a bespoke song. 
And I thought that was like a funny line. And then as I'm watching these commercials, I'm like, oh my gosh, they all have their own song. I just thought that was really cute. That's so funny. Um, I know we already talked about the Dance the Night Away bespoke song, but I read, um, well, it's actually going to be, nom- or it was nominated in the 2023 MTV VMAs so far. Um, Grammys aren't until I believe February. So we'll see if that takes any of the awards. Um, but I did hear that Issa learned the routine the day before, and she said it was terrifying and it was the worst day of her life. I think she also says she can't dance. I think she's a self-proclaimed, not a dancer. She's a self-proclaimed nerd and she can't dance. <laughs> it's hysterical. So when they gave each Barbie, uh, you know, their own song, they were trying to highlight, I think, the different personalities. And then, you know, the, Mattel is also... Uh, gone into different ethnicities over the years, and you know, let's let's discuss how that process has been. Yeah, so today their line includes thirty-five different skin tones, ninety-seven hairstyles, and nine body types. Uh, but let's dig into the timeline a little bit more. Megan, you said you did some digging here. Yeah, so our first black Barbie was introduced in nineteen sixty-eight. Um, so almost 10 years after our original Barbie, and her name is Francie. So she's not actually Barbie. Um, and then we have our first Asian Barbie in 1981, originally called, unfortunately, Oriental Barbie. Hate that. Ugh. I'm going to jump in real quick with another unfortunate fact. I believe Francie, the first black Barbie, was introduced as colored Barbie. <gasps> Color, colored Francie. Colored Francie, yeah. Ugh. That gives me heartburn. Um, (laughs) then we have our first disabled Barbie in 1997. Her name's Becky. We have in, let me back up actually, first indigenous Barbie also introduced in 1981, um, originally called Eskimo Barbie, also problematic. And then a first edition Native American Barbie was introduced in 1993, but it had a lot of negative stereotypes of Native people. Of course. Of course. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I think those were probably part of the Dolls of the World collection, which came out in 1980. Um, each doll represents a specific country or region and is dressed in traditional attire that reflects their cultural heritage in that place, um, which included a doll rep- representing Mexico. But the next year, 1981, in, as part of the Dolls of the World collection, um, they that's when they introduced Asian Barbie, which they called Oriental Barbie at the time. Um, sorry, 1988, a few years later, the first Latina Barbie was released, which is confusing because they already had, um, the Barbie that represented Mexico. Um, but her name, the Latina Barbie was named Teresa and she wasn't explicitly Latina and her features were supposed to be ambiguous so that she could look Italian or Latina. And then in 99, it was established that her last name was Rivera confirming her Latina identity. And it's insane that it took all that, but um, Cinco de Mayo Barbie came later. (laughs) God. Uh, We have also lots of controversial and just like weird Barbies. Um, We have Barbie Babysitter. I I fortunately did not write down her year, um, the year that she hit the shelves, but she had a bunch of accessories that included a book called How to Lose Weight. Um, And there's also Slumber Party Barbie. And she had some of the same uh, accessories, but one one that stood out to me was a scale that always read 110 pounds. Um, yeah, 
we got pregnant Barbie or pregnant Midge. We have Midge, um, which she's in the movie. I had a Midge. And let me tell you the weirdest thing, truly, because um, her stomach like popped off and you could take it, It's just, just gross. Wait, um, what? You could take her stomach off? Yeah, it was like a plastic piece and it like you could take it off and then put another piece on top of it, like after the, oh. the baby was born, I guess. And this this one, this next one, I like I have a I couldn't even believe my eyes. So they Barbie had a partnership with Oreo cookies at one point and released an Oreo Barbie, and she was black. And um Consumers quickly were like, no, we don't like this um, because they identified the derogatory term for black people. Um, you know, Oreo, black on the outside, white on the inside, which is just awful. Um, so she was quickly taken off the shelves. A little bit more on that. They actually did that twice. Um, so they, they did it in 97. And in 97, they only used the white Barbie, but, you know, still marketed it as Oreo because they had the partnership. Um, but in 2001, they released a manufactured black Barbie. And critics argued, you know, that the African-American community uh, claims, and I'm mixed, so I have no problem saying that it is a derogatory term used to describe a black person who is perceived as acting too white. And that's when they pulled it. But they did it twice, which is insane. Um, and then Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Issue Barbie, which is just weird. Why? Um, they did start introducing, it looks like, new body shapes, curvy, tall, and petite in 2015. Um, and then they expanded the sew-in style line, which included more skin tones and eye colors, as well as hairstyles. And then uh, in 19... Barbie introduced dolls that reflected permanent physical disabilities, which Megan, I think you mentioned earlier, but there was one doll introduced earlier than that in 97, which I believe is the one you were talking about. Um, and she was in a wheelchair, but a high school student with cerebral palsy pointed out that the doll would not fit in the elevator of the Barbie dream house. So Mattel ended up revising it. All right. Well, I think it's interesting that they've released the new body types and stuff like that, the new hairstyles and all, but I also think they're like catering to what they think they need to do. Mm -hmm. Oh, a hundred percent. Um, 2023 this year, they released a Barbie with down syndrome. And then also they made a weird Barbie after Kate McKinnon's portrayal. So I have her on pre-order. I cannot. Oh, you do leave her. Yes. I'm very excited. <laughs> she comes in May. <laughs> Amazing. Don't ever take her out of the box. Nope. Never. <laughs> I or saw I a great splits. I don't know. <laughs> I bet she comes yeah. in the splits. I was going to say, she should be in the splits so. in the box. Yeah. I really yeah. hope so. Like up against the side of the box. Yeah. I can't wait. That, that's what I expect. And um, I saw a really good Halloween costume of Weird Barbie the other day. So um, yeah, I've seen a lot. I had some friends that went as Weird uh, Barbie and, and Alan. I've seen a lot of Alan's, which is, you know, that's uplifting surprising. considering how Let's many Let's talk about Alan for a minute. I think Let's Alan needs his own Alan. time, yes. I need to talk about Alan. I'd like to get your opinion, Jeff, on Alan. I mean, you know, I wasn't familiar with there being an Alan doll, but like as a movie character, certainly cut through some, some things. Like it was Michael Sarah did a tremendous job and it was great having this sort of break from the world in a way with that character. I mean, was, he was a really fun character. I mean, is Alan, was he meant to be Ken's gay friend? Is that what? He's just meant to be Ken's friend. 
Uh, oh, sorry. I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to sexualize him. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just thought. I thought that's what I read. But um, and that may be true. I, that might be canon now. I don't know. But um, the appeal of, of Alan was that he was not Ken, but he fit. He he could wear all of Ken's clothes, and he says that in the movie. I fit all of Ken's clothes. Yeah, that was one of my favorite touches during the fight scene. He was saying all of his catchphrases while he was fighting. Yeah. Um, so Alan, and, and it's also funny that he has the, like the self-awareness that he's the only Alan. <laughs> um, ugh, I loved Alan. I thought I was really, really happy to see Michael Sarah back on the big screen and he just really perfected that role. I think Alan is such a unique character in this world in Barbie land because you can see that he wants the best for the Barbies and the Kens. And he doesn't really pick a side. He just wants everybody to be happy. And he wants everyone to like love themselves and love each other. And I think we need more of that in the real world. I like that you brought up his self-awareness because I like the times they went to that fourth wall breaking self-awareness vibe in the movie. I think, I believe it's Helen Mirren is the, uh, is the, uh, the voiceover and her saying when Barbie says she feels ugly saying the producers probably shouldn't have picked uh, Margot Robbie for that if they want to convey that. Just like amazing, just moments like that really grounded the movie when it could have been oddly the fourth wall breaking grounded the movie when it could have been way over the top with some of the moments. Like acknowledging, like, yeah, this seems ridiculous, but play along with us here. And I like that they called themselves out though, otherwise, it looks a little tone deaf, right? To what their whole message is. So it was just like so thoughtfully done, but it's a careful line to balance. I was gonna say it's hilarious, a hilarious line, or I guess part in the movie is when they are trying to get out of Barbie land with Alan and Alan mentions like, once they learn how to build that wall horizontally, we're all screwed. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so funny. It's so good. I think too, you know, um, bringing it back to saying the filmmakers shouldn't have cast Margot Robbie if they wanted to convey this message um, or to make this point really speaks to, it really doesn't matter what you look like, how beautiful you are, how beautiful you, the world can perceive you um, that internalized messaging that we've all been fed, um, to meet a certain standard, it, it, it affects those people too. And, and insecurities can breed in the prettiest of people. Um, and we see this all the time with celebrities who have work done because they feel they need to maintain a certain image or, or whatever. The prettiest people in the world can feel ugly. Such a good point. We all internalize it. It's bred into us, right? Like, especially this generation and, you know, our access to social media and all that. It's it's just inherent at this point. Not for everybody, I shouldn't say, but for a, a lot of women and men. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people. Um, I also wanted to touch on <laughs> uh, Jeff. I don't think Mattel was like super into like the whole gay messaging because in 2009, when Sugar Daddy Ken came out, like there was huge backlash because everybody's like, what the fuck is this? And then Mattel's response to the backlash was he's Sugar's daddy. And I say that in air quotes because Sugar was the name of his dog. <laughs> right. I mean, it's so absurd, beyond absurd. And that was another one of those, that was another one of those break the wall moments. Cause I think they said Sugar Daddy Ken and they have said, yes, that was real. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. All of these Barbies were real. Um, the TV Barbie, the one with the TV in her back. I yeah. had that Barbie. 
And I remember <laughs> thinking, this is weird. I don't know why I would want to watch TV on the back of my doll. It, right. Yeah, I thought that was strange. What is this? Is she a cyborg? Like, what is happening? <laughs> I don't remember, like, what her initial purpose, like, what, how she was marketed. I just remember that, I just remember the TV in the back being the weirdest thing. Was it, like, an actual TV? Like, what, what was it? Um, I don't remember, like I said, I don't really remember what was on it, but it, there was, like, a couple of little buttons, so you could kind of interact with it. And it was battery operated. So once the battery died, I never replaced it. I didn't care about that. <laughs> she was weird as it was. Um, but what's also strange about her is that you really could, you couldn't change her clothes either. So she didn't get played with a lot. Mm. Well, this, the creep factor brings me to growing up Skipper, who I was not aware of prior to the movie. Oh my God. Megan, you want to take this one? <laughs> yeah, uh, my mom had that that Barbie doll. Um, so for those unfamiliar, yeah, for those unfamiliar, growing up Skipper is a, a Barbie doll where if you raise her arm up, her chest grows larger um, to <laughs> simulate growing up, I guess. Um, very strange. So to, to drift back a second, Barbie's necklace features a camera lens that shoots from her point of view. You can watch her recordings in real time and play them back on the color LCD screen that's conveniently located on her back. That's what it was. Wow. LCD? Yeah. When did that come out? Uh, oh, it was the late 90s. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's impressive. It yeah. <laughs> I mean, I kind of want to see it. Yeah. <laughs> One of the weirdest Barbies I think I ever had, she wasn't really meant to be weird, but it was USA Olympics Barbie. Um, I think she came out in 97, 96 or 97 following the Olympics um, that were held here, I think in Atlanta. Yeah. Yeah. 96 in Atlanta. There you go. Um, and she had a full bodysuit like leotard because all of her joints could bend. All of them, like her wrists, her elbows, everything could bend. Whereas I remember that normal Barbie, her legs were straight, her arms were, you know, just very slightly bent. Um, but you could move Olympics Barbie in any way. She could do any shape. So like taking off her leotard, though, icky, because all her joints were just grotesque looking because they had to bend every which way. It was awful looking. What's not realistic about that? <laughs> yeah, you, she could bend her joints in um inhumane ways <laughs> gross <laughs> i mean i loved at the end where they like went through you know i think maybe it was in the credits where they went through a bunch of old products mm -hmm. yeah old products and also like archival pieces that they were wearing in the movie which um one of them, i think prior to this uh megan you and i were talking about whether or not ken's coat was an archival piece and i did some digging and it's not um which makes sense because it kind of speaks to the patriarchy being newly introduced to Barbie land. But also that coat was PETA approved. It's faux fur. So that's good to know. I think it will become an archival piece because I think um, that will be a collector Barbie, obviously. Um, and it is like we see with Disney movies, how they'll put things in the vault. Um, I think they do that with certain Barbie dolls um, and certain Barbie clothing and accessories. So I think it will become an archival piece decades down the road. I need the I am Kenoff sweater or a hoodie though. I need that. So Holidays are coming, Nick. It is. <laughs> it is pretty it is pretty great. And this kind of brings me to the fact that Mattel, from what I understand, is looking at turning other um 
brands into movies. Like, how could anyone follow up this movie with another movie based on a toy brand? It's just like, I mean, it would have to be completely different, but like, I just don't think you could do it. Like, what are they going to do? Well, what are you going to get Greta to direct everyone, direct and write every one of them? Like that, I think that's a huge part of why this was so successful. It was, but I don't think you can just do it again. You know? Lena Dunham's right. already connected to a Polly Pocket movie. So, and with Lily Collins as Polly Pocket, like they're oh, already wow, that's Phil Collins' daughter. I right? didn't know that was a thing. Yeah, that's. I didn't know that was a thing either. Yep, that's. Uh, I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> Take some time to Yeah, that's some complicated feelings. <laughs> I was going to say, we should probably elaborate like on the complicated feelings. Like Lena Dunham is quite controversial. And um, I mean, I was a huge fan of girls, not going to lie, like loved that show, but she's come out to say some like pretty controversial things since then. And I mean, I don't think that really matters. I mean, she's clearly a very gifted writer and this, that does have potential, especially considering how many, especially millennials in probably the generation before us, Gen X, um, relate to and remember Polly Pocket. But yeah, I would be I would be interested to see a trailer at least. Yeah, I would too. I also loved Girls. Um, Jeff and I are actually watching it, like re-watching it now with just like- more You're Jeff, not eyes. me, just for yeah, audience clarity. Um, <laughs> we're watching it right now, just like with fresher, more mature eyes to just kind of see like what, we maybe still like about it, what we don't like about it. And I think Lena Dunham has given voice to a lot of the like millennial internal struggles that women face in this world. I think she, I agree that she's a talented writer. I think that she does have something valuable to say, but with her controversy, yeah, she said some, some problematic shit. So uh, I, I would go into that with skeptical eyes, I think, um, but I would be interested. Same. All right. Well, I'm curious to see how you could possibly tie this up or excuse me. I'm curious to see how you could possibly follow this up with any other toy brand, but you know, this movie surprised me and I'm sure another one could as well. Um, and you know, so let's, let's just talk about the takeaways from this film, you know, for us, but also for society, for film in general and beyond. Yeah, um, something we talked about outside of this um, is how this kind of opened up the film in itself, opened up people to realizing that they may be in toxic relationships and, you know, what the what that might look like. Um, there's sympathy on both sides for Ken and Barbie from the writers. This probably changed the perspective of a lot of people, I would imagine. I, yeah, like, like oh, as I've said, I, I am raised by just a woman married to a woman I, I like to think i was a good ally and as jeff said earlier i believe that but i i believe it's made me a better one because i can understand a bit more where they're coming from uh where women are coming from and as a result of a lot of it like i said goes back to the to the monologue like that was so beautifully done and really spelled out the things that i'd been seeing but hadn't been noticing and and it it it's helping me try to be better. Even my the female em, employees that I have, just trying to be. Again, I try to treat them as equals, but try to be better towards them in a way that I didn't might not have realized I was being. No, that's that's a good way to put it. You know, just gives you a little more perspective, opens your eyes a little bit more. To you know, the least that any of us can do is 
act in our lives with these principles that we're talking about. You know, that's the least any of us can do to, to impact change and everybody can impact change. And so it's just even just thinking about these things a little bit more in your everyday life um, and trying to just be a little force against the intensity of the patriarchy. Yeah. And Nick, I think to your point, um, just the fact that you're on the show today and Jeff, you making it a point to make this episode a thing is both of you being great allies to women. So I thank you both. I totally agree. I think that one of the asks of this movie is that the audience go on um, a sort of an internal journey of self-healing and introspection and um, all of us kind of examining the ways in which we are agents of the patriarchy and um, how, how we can dismantle that, how we can make the world a little bit nicer, a little bit more supportive, um, and particularly as it relates to the women in our lives. Um, I think it's super important that, that people are, like I said, doing this kind of like introspection here and, and kind of critiquing the ways that maybe they weren't a great ally before, or just acknowledging their role in a system, um, that is just inherently harmful for everybody and how, how we can make that better. The choice, the little choices that we can make every day. And if you haven't seen this movie yet and you've made it this far in this episode, maybe check it out. And if you have seen it and you had negative thoughts, watch it again and consider these perspectives. Or if you've only seen it once and this, I'm sure this would have made me want to watch it again. I've seen it, I think three times now. Um, but yeah, I, just talking about it gets me excited to check it out again. I'm excited that it's going to be out there in society and, you know, in pop culture and continue to grow. And um, I think it opened eyes to things, I think, on the film front, you know, shows that there's a lot of different ways you can weave impact into film um, and in the few ways you can gain people's attentions for any span of time these days, you know, film is one of them. And you know, I'm glad that this movie was successful. Not only did it exist, but that it was successful and can serve as an example for other people that are trying to fit positive impact messages into their films. And, and the, the measure of a movie is not based on this, but I have a feeling once February rolls around, there's going to be a lot of gold statues for this movie. But there's no way this doesn't get a Best Picture nom. Uh, Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling deserve Best Actor and Actress. Um, best original song, like best songs, like there's so many to choose from. Uh, Billie Eilish is, like I said, gorgeous, beautiful original song. Uh, this you mentioned the score building up to that song, it should be up there. It's um, there's again, th this isn't what's necessary for a movie to make an impact, but I think it's going to show uh, come Oscar season that this movie was not just a financial success, but just a, like a cinema success. Yeah, and I think also the point that may, makes is that it wasn't just a, like a, this one moment in time. Like this movie continues to be relevant and will continue to be relevant. Yep, and it is available on Amazon Prime. And I am seeing that if it's not yet, it is coming to Max, which used to be HBO. Um, so if you already have that subscription, check it out there. Uh, but it's available now for streaming and you know to buy or rent. Yep, and I don't know if it's still out, but they did release it in IMAX. Uh, Kate, Megan, and I went to see it, um, which was cool. 
to see it on that screen. And they added some um, uh, footage to that yeah. one too, which was yeah, great. Yeah, like some bloopers and. Yeah, there was some good stuff in there. So if that's still out, it's worth checking out. Um, but I doubt it is. <laughs> and so let's let's do just like some final words, like either what you want the audience to take with them from this or like what action someone can take to, to better be an ally. I, I would say in terms of things that people can do to be a better ally um, is number one, listening to women, listening to lived experiences of women um, and other marginalized people, queer people, minorities, because they are the foremost expert on their life experience and, and the way that the, the world and the way that they experience the world. Um, so listening and embarking on a journey of self-healing so that you present to the world as your best version. Yeah, I think that's, that's a great way to go about it. The cliche is you love yourself to love others. And I think this movie is a great example of that. Barbie found her purpose, Ken found his purpose, and they were able to be themselves and be their best selves. I think finding your best self and treating others with equality is, is really the name of the game of this one. And it doesn't matter if they're white, black, male, female, straight, uh, queer, they're a person. Treat them as a person. Don't look at them as anything else. And, and it's just going to make the world better. Yeah, I would agree with both of you. And I would just add that if you're somebody who didn't grasp <laughs> the entirety of this film, or if you have negative thoughts about it, or you just don't understand, I would suggest you look at it from a perspective that's not your own. Um, you've got four perspectives in this recording alone that might be able to help. There's a learning opportunity here. And if, if you didn't learn something and you still feel like this movie is against men, you're missing something, I promise. That's a great way to put it, you know, viewing it from another's perspective. And, um, you know, I would just say to, for everyone, you know, I, I say things like this on the podcast all the time, but just we're all citizens of earth and the better each and every one of us does, the better the others will do. You know, it is hard for me to understand that people, there are people out there that want to serve themselves and not serving mutual benefit. And um, I just ask you and your everyone in their daily lives to consider how to make things the best for everybody. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for joining. Excited to get this one out there. And, uh, you know, maybe when there's a sequel or another toy movie or anything that impacts society from a film perspective or otherwise, we can bring this crew back together. Love we'll to. see you for the Polly Pocket movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That'll be interesting. I might pass on that one. Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. Thanks for listening to this episode of People Are the Answer. If you enjoyed the episode, share it with friends and reviews or subscriptions on your favorite platforms go a long way to help the show grow. I want to share these incredible people and their remarkable work with as many others as possible. Thanks for your support. For more, go to peoplearetheanswer.com.